Hey, this is Charles Hain for the Weekend Film Tech. I'm here with a small HD Focus 7 Bolt, which is the first thing I'm going to be talking about today on the Weekend Film Tech. And it's, for those of you watching it on YouTube, you're seeing it in my hands. However, for the next two weeks, YouTubers, uh, I'll be uploading it to YouTube, but it'll just be a little picture of my smiling mug or something because I will be in Maine teaching at the Maine Media Workshop for the next two weeks. So I will be recording just on a Zoom audio recorder. I'm not going to drag the whole setup with me. And then we've got a Hey Professor. We actually had two Hey Professors this week on Twitter, so I'm only going to get to one. And then we're going to get to something from AccuSonos, which is a Greek audio plug-in company that I think is kind of interesting. All that... Coming up on the Week in Film Tech. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Charles for the Week in Film Tech. And the first thing that you can see in front of me, uh, if you're watching this on the YouTube, or I'm just going to describe it to you, is the small HD Focus 7 Bolt. I love this thing. So if you guys are a regular reader of the stuff I cover, last year I, I covered something called the uh, 703 Bolt. And basically what this is, is if you've been on a film set in the last 10 years, you know that mostly director and a few other crew people usually like to have a little monitor in their hands. But in order to have that monitor get a wireless video signal, you're usually rigging up like a big block battery and you're rigging up like a Sidekick 2 and then you're wiring it all together so there's cables going everywhere. It's usually in a wooden camera director's monitor cage, which is actually a very nice, like very simple unit. But like you put it all together. And it's kind of burly, and it's kind of unwieldy. And, uh, you know, I used to have one with a 702 OLED, which I liked because it's very color accurate. Although color accuracy is maybe not the thing to obsess about on set. But I really liked that monitor and that setup, but it was bulky, and, it, like, I needed this huge box. And it was always, like, big, burly, and complicated. I tried loaning it out a few times, and it always felt, like, clunky, and it would come back, and the cables would be repatched, and... It was just never a brilliant solution to me. We used it because we needed it because directors want to wander away from camera and still look down and see their monitor, but it wasn't great. So we first saw at NAB 2017 this little like combo thing, small HD and Teradek working together as an engineering team to, to really make this fascinating combo unit. And then it came out in the summer of 2018, the 703 Bolt 3000, 3200, I don't remember the price point, a little pricey, but amazing. Wireless video receiver integrated with the monitor and i was working on a shoot last summer and we borrowed it for the shoot and holy cow i have never seen such a hot toy where like i would i was directing i would put it down for a second all of a sudden the gaffer would have it and they'd be wandering around set and tweaking lights and being able to look down at it and they'd put it down and the production designer would grab it like it is a hot piece of kit because it's so simple the the integration of the wireless receiver and the monitor into one unit is a really slick feature you know we have some competition in that space, but Small HD and Teradek are really owning that and winning that right now. However, $3,000, I haven't, I don't know anybody personally bought one. You know, we send these review units back and I was definitely like, ah, oh, this is one of the few things I would like to buy, but I wasn't, I'm not working enough on set to really justify it. Uh, I'm sure some people did buy them. However, this year at NAB, NAB 2019, uh, they revealed this Focus 7 Bolt, which is like, I think it's like 1500 bucks. It's like half the price. And it is a combination of the Focus 7 monitor and a receiver. So how do they do it at half the price? Well, it's not as bright. It goes to 1,000 nits, not 3,000 nits. And brightness is not actually something I'm obsessed with in a color grading monitor. Like, if I'm going to be in a dark room, I don't need it to get to 3,000 nits. But the beauty of the 3,000 nits in that 703 bolt from a year ago is I, you know, we would do day exterior shoots in August in New York. The noon sun is barreling down at you, and you'd never even thought about it. You just looked at the monitor, you could see it. The only time I thought about brightness was remembering to turn it down when it was like a night interior and I didn't want it so bright because I didn't want it to affect my eyes or I didn't want to waste the battery. But like, wandering around, day exterior, 
fine. Focus 7 to 1000 nits, 1000 nits is actually still pretty bright, but you might end up in situations where you want to put like a little lens shade on it, maybe. It's actually been raining so much in New York. It's the uh, a record year for New York rain, so I haven't actually been able to take it outside while I've had it on loan on a sunny day yet, and it's raining today, so I can't see it today. If we have sun before I do the review, before I write up the review, I'll talk about it. But a thousand nits is not three thousand nits. You're still probably going to be fine in most of your daylight situations. The other thing they did is they got rid of the on camera buttons. Right, You usually have on the monitor a bunch of buttons, and now it's all touchscreen. There are a couple things that might take a little longer in the interface, but nothing that's going to be a deal breaker. It's going to be just fine. People are going to be very happy. Honestly, this is the thing where I suspect I'm going to start to see a lot of people I know have them. I'm betting I'm going to blink, and then all of a sudden there's going to be a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, this is my monitor, 1500 bucks, and I have my... You know, all of the small HD monitor features like false color and waveform and all of that good stuff. And you can zoom in when you're doing focus and and all of those things we love about a small HD monitor. And you've got it all in this tight little handheld unit that pairs with a Teradek transmitter. Now, of course, you still need to pay for the Teradek transmitter, but Teradek also came out with a very affordable transmitter called the ACE I've been playing with one of those as well. Going to write up a review of both of them together. They're actually selling them in a bundle right now. And what's interesting about the Ace, like it's just an HDMI wireless transmitter. However, they made this interesting decision with the Ace, and I like it. And it's how they make it more affordable. But it's something you should be aware of, which is traditionally, there's a locking power connector. Like, you, you know, you plug it in and you lock it. It's like a Fisher or a Limo, and you've got to pull the cuff out to get it to disconnect. This is a normal old power connector. So you just slide it in and it can come undone. It's a cost savings thing because those cable connectors are actually really expensive. The connector itself is something like 80 bucks, obviously. So when you go buy the power cable for it, like I bought a wall charger once for Teradek uh, for my Sidekick 2 and uh, back when I owned one. And, oh, my God, it was like $130. By switching to this less locked power connector, it's a really great way for Ace to save money. Uh, it's going to make it way easier on users when you lose a power cable or you want another wall wart or something like that. But it's also going to be a little, I'm not guaranteeing it's going to fall out on set, but I think that there are going to be more situations where it pops out than would ever happen with the locking connector that we previously used to use. Other than that, Teradek case still feels like a Teradek product. It pairs perfectly with the small HD. It's HDMI only. So it's a really interesting little combo where I think for like, I don't know, 20, 200 bucks. I need to look up the actual bundle price. You get this really dynamite, like, oh my God, I have an, if your camera has an HDMI out, which like all of us little affordable indie folks will have an HDMI out. You're not going to have an HDMI out on Alexa. Reds and EVA1s and a lot of cameras will have that HDMI out for you. You can hook up to a Teradek Ace uh, transmitter, have a small HD7 receiver, and then all of a sudden you're like actually really cooking with gas with this really well-integrated system. So yeah. Uh, the other thing to know, Small HD has this really nice battery mount that it's like if you push the batteries down, it's Canon, but in the same spot, you can push battery in and then up and it's Sony. So, you know, everybody in film has like a dozen Sony batteries, but some of us also have a bunch of Canon batteries. I have a bunch of both because of reviewing stuff and you never know what a company is going to use. And I like that Small HD uses both. You know, I, every decision we ever make is a trade-off. Where I made of money, where I working top of the line DP doing a lot of car work, where I'm going to be day exterior all the time, I'd buy the 703 bolt. The three grand or 3200 or whatever it would be would be totally worth it. As an indie person who works on smaller scale shoots and spends a lot more time like writing articles and uh, um, doing post than on set, I think the Focus M bolt is a really nice price point combo for what it offers. So I think it's very interesting and people should take a look. All right, up next, next in gear news this week. 
Hasselblad came out with an X1D Mark II, and it's the same sensor. Okay, so let's have a little context first. So in the medium format world, let's, let's go full context. Text, right? Motion pictures have traditionally been built around mostly 35 millimeter, the super 35 millimeter image sensor, right? And then we've been recently seeing in motion pictures this really big push to full frame. And full frame is actually still 35 millimeter sized, but in a stills camera, the 35 millimeter film went sideways. It didn't go vertically. And because it went sideways, it was taller, which meant it was wider. So full frame in still is actually a bigger sensor size than we would ever have used in motion pictures. Unless we're talking about 65 millimeter, something like that. Let's talk about the bulk of mainstream cinema, 35 millimeter, super 35 millimeter. So full frame is something we're seeing right now. Canon full frame and the C700FF and the uh, Alexa Mini LF and RED has had full frame sensors for a while. The 5D Mark II is a full frame sensor. Like full frame has been around. Bigger sensor gives you a smaller depth of field and a different field of view. In the medium format range, medium format is even bigger than full frame. So you move up from full frame. The next step up is medium format, which the naming conventions are all weird and have historical reasons. Like you'd think full frame would be the biggest, but it's actually kind of small in stills because you would go from medium format to large format, which is like 8 by 10 and stuff like that. Medium format is a medium size. It's a pretty actually very large size for filmmakers to think of. Sensor size. And the two big dominant names in that have traditionally been in film. I mean, Yashica and a bunch of others. But in the digital era, it's really been Hasselblad and Fujifilm. Hasselblad has a bunch of really nice digital cameras. I actually know people, it's very rare you run into like people who love 10-year-old digital anything, but I have photographer friends who are like skimming eBay looking for like 11-year-old Hasselblad digital cameras because the lenses are beautiful, the glass is great, it's the image quality you get with some of the earlier sensors is still really acceptable because the sensor is so big that it balances out. So Hasselblad has really been one of the top names, especially in the digital era. Hasselblad had sort of two cameras. Your VH line, which is the more traditional line that could do 4K. I actually shot a review of it two years ago shooting 4K. Because the sensor is so big, you have a lot of rolling shutter issues in the H line. But it's still a really nice camera. Beautiful imagery. If I were shooting something that was a fashion thing and it was all really slow camera moves and, you know, people whipping their hair around really gorgeous stuff, you get beautiful imagery out of the H line. And Alpa, who make accessories and stuff, have made a PL mount adapter for it. So there's all sorts of stuff happening in that space that's about to be interesting for filmmakers, but isn't quite yet. The X1D is their mirrorless. So that means that the whole lens system is completely redesigned, different lens mount so that it's a much shallower flange focal distance. The lens is much closer to the sensor. And the original X1D only did 1080p video, which, you know, okay, fair. What's interesting to me about the X1D Mark II is it's a revision of the camera without a revision of the sensor, which is great because the sensor is apparently by all rights amazing. The body is very small and instead of going out and revising the sensor and the processing, it is 100% a refresh for processing. Obviously, computer processors get faster year on year on year. So a couple of years after the X1D comes out, they come out with an X1D Mark II. Even if all they did was refresh the internals, that would actually be a really big update. Because the thing you're getting into with medium format is you're getting into processing speed. And because those files are so big and they're coming off these massive sensors, you want the files to process as quickly as possible to address rolling shutter. Now, there's no video at all in the X1D Mark II on launch. I've been told by Hasselblad, I went to their little launch event last week, I've been told by Hasselblad that it is coming in the first firmware update. They won't say if that's going to be this year or not, but they will say the first firmware update will have video. I'm betting it's going to be 4K video because it's 2019 and why would 1080 video be a thing? And because... 
the whole point of it, of the X1D refresh, is faster internal processing. And faster internal processing is the thing we need out of the X1D to get us to a really interesting place. Now, are they going to give us raw over HDMI like Nikon does? I have no idea. Nikon has proved it's doable. I think that'd be really interesting. The other thing that's really fascinating is the price point is like $5,500. And that, for a Hasselblad medium format camera, is getting really competitive. That's obviously a response to Fujifilm and their GFX100. And, um, you know, that the GFX100 is definitely coming for filmmakers. Uh, it's definitely trying to be the, like, 5D Mark II equivalent for filmmakers of, like, hey, filmmakers, here's a camera. It might not be perfect for you, but the sensor is so big and beautiful. It's worth sort of bending your workflow to make it work. And I think Hasselblad might be hoping the X1D is their equivalent of that. Uh, it's really interesting that there are no video features at all in the Mark II at launch because the Mark I had 1080p video. And I'm very curious to see where this is going. And this is something that should be on filmmakers' radar. Uh, our third tech news story of the week is AccuSonos, which is a plug-in maker out of Athens, Greece, has released their new plug-in line. What's interesting about their new line, the Enhancement and Refinement of Audio line, uh, ERA4, is that they are really focused on using AI and machine learning to have what they call single-knob plugins. Now, I don't know about you. I know enough about audio. I'm Pro Tools certified for whatever that means, but... I feel like a lot of people, I remember I was sitting with like a professional editor once who was like, yeah, sometimes you just slap on a plug-in and you play with the knobs till it's fine and you keep moving. I feel like a lot of times it's it's impossible to know everything about everything. And a lot of times, like I'll be sitting with an audio mixer and they'll drop on an audio plug-in. And first off, most audio plug-ins look really 90s to me, which the Accusonos don't. They look like a modern UI, which is quite nice. But like you'll see this thing and there are all these controls and there are all these things. And, of course, if you're a professional full-time audio mixer and they have a pro plug-in platform that will have all of the controls. But if you're an editor, you're a podcaster, you're, you know, just a general, like, one-mule team filmmaker, honestly, a one-knob plug-in sounds pretty fantastic. Where literally it's just like noise correction, turn it up, turn it down. You know, de-reverb, turn it up, turn it down. This kind of thing. Now, for this to work, you actually need more sophistication in the plugin to do this kind of thing. It's actually much harder for the plugin because the same technique is not going to apply to every shot. So there has to be, you know, when they say AI and machine learning, what they're probably doing is analyzing the content of the audio that's about to be manipulated. And then based on that analysis, as you turn the up knob up and down, it's applying much more sophisticated analysis to it so that one uh, single knob processing is actually able to give you something interesting. So that's, like, exciting. I actually think we're going to start seeing more and more single-knob type plugins because, you know, uh, and, and in fact, Neat Video for a couple years now has been like, yes, we have all the controls, but the first thing you should do is you should just try and hit the auto button and see what works. Like, select a little area of noise and hit auto. And sometimes that works magic in Neat Video. So I think we're getting to this place where as the software tools become more sophisticated, the number of controls and inputs we have to have to make them work are becoming less. Now... Are dedicated professionals always going to want the thing with 90 knobs? Totally, especially in sound. But I think it's a kind of interesting place to be, and I think I'm I'm excited. My uh, colleague Lily Kleinman is going to be doing a hands-on review with them, and I cannot wait to see what they are. All right, up next, hey professor, hey professor. This week came from Chris Hillock. Chris Hillock, hey my friend, hey buddy. I've been using color charts for color correcting my footage, but I'm interested in a color meter, and I wanted to know what to look for. Uh, I've been interested in the names of model, but it has mixed reviews. I'm a full-time camera operator, DOP, and filmmaker. 
So this is a great question. I spent a long time as a full-time operator uh, DP and, you know, my color meter was a later purchase. I was doing really well with a color chart and a light meter for a very long time. And I'm actually old enough that uh, my first color meter purchase was a Minolta Color Meter 2, which I still have somewhere in this insane office. And the Minolta Color Meter 2 is fantastic until you get to anything that's not a tungsten-based or daylight-based source. So the first thing I'm going to bring up is my advice 10 years ago would have been go on eBay or Craigslist and get an old Minolta Color Meter 2 or 3 because I, I think I got it for 100 bucks. And at the time, you know, the Sekonic, the the really wonderful Sekonic was like $1,000. And so it was like a real cost savings to get the Minolta. But those Minoltas, those like 70s, 80s looking Minoltas are really designed for daylight and tungsten sources. They're not even great at fluorescence. So you got to rule them totally out. They are historic at this point. I It is just sitting on my shelf. So what we're into now is we're into a whole new world of color meters. There are, Sekonic has been doing a lot of color meter work at this point. However, the Sekonic color meters are kind of pricey. They are great. Every once in a while, I will be on a job where I want to rent them, but they are not something that I've ever felt like I was work needed them enough to buy them. And here's why. Color meters are wonderful, but if I was a full-time working gaffer, it would be worth the investment because really more than... On a little show, it'll be a uh, DP's tool, but it's really a gaffing best boy electric tool because what it's really about is it's about getting all of your lights and your camera together. Because, like, let's say, you know, as a friend of mine who works at a lighting company always likes to say, he's like, well, Sony's 5500 is different than Blackmagic's 5500 is different than Fujifilm's 5500. And he's right. You know, if I put three cameras up and I set them all to the same and I point them all at the same white card, they're not going to look the same. Part of life. But that kind of global problem... It's nice to have a color meter to, to help identify that. But frankly, a color chart does that just as well. I throw up a color chart, I fix it to the color chart, and that'll balance out for a global thing like a different sensor. What I use a color meter for is when I have mixed lighting color scenarios. So, for instance, you know, a classic example of a color meter. I'm shooting in a grocery store. There's some big windows outside. There's big fluorescent lights overhead. And I have a whole bunch of people on the ground. So I need to do something to get the green spike out of the fluorescence. And I need to balance the daylight outside the windows to the light inside. And so I'm going to use a color meter to put some sort of gel on the window, which like is cost money and time, like gelling windows takes work. Or I'm going to use a color meter to read the light coming in the windows because a lot of times on indie shoots, what you end up doing is you say, what's the biggest thing? I'm not going to change the biggest thing. The windows are the big thing. If I have this giant 50-foot bank of windows, although I have gelled those in the past. Um, thank you, John Moran, for indulging me on gelling those windows. And it actually looked really good. Uh, John Moran was the director of a project where I did that. Um, and it took time, but it was totally worth it. For the most part, don't gel the windows. Let those window lights come in. And then you're like, okay, well, I've got this daylight. I get out there with my color meter and my daylight. I can read my overhead lights I can then use the color meter to match my overhead lights to the window light and whatever floor lights so they're all matching each other. Now, technically, in color grading, can I have green light from above and blue light coming in and fix it? Sure, but like if you think about my face, if I have blue light on my face from above and green light on the side, it's going to be really hard to draw shapes to like clean that up. It's, so you really want, even in a digital color correcting and digital uh, video workflow, you want to try and match those sources together on set, and that's what we use a color meter for. Or... That's what we use a really color-accurate monitor for. And I can't believe I'm saying that, but honestly, I think a lot of people are using a really color-accurate monitor. And right now, spending the money to get, like, a small HD OLED 
or get a Flanders on set or get something where you can really dial in and trust that is giving you color information accurately can be really useful. All right, so top of the line, Taconic, they're wonderful. They are great. I have rented them a couple times. I've never bought them. In the more like affordable world, there's a couple things that I think are worth looking at. I haven't used the UPR tech, but people say good things about the UPR. But I've used the Ascense tech a lot. In fact, I use the Ascense tech a lot when I'm reviewing lights. I think I'm saying Ascense tech, right? Ascense tech? Ascense tech. It's a little Bluetooth unit. Syncs up to your phone. You get very usable data from it. You get CRI reports, which will help you evaluate, like if you're choosing to buy a light, you can use that then. You can also really use that when helping balancing light. So you get a little bit of a more robust passel of information. I've used some of the other ones out there, and I haven't really... There's sort of a... In the 100 to $200 range, there's nothing that gives me the good color data I want. I've used Illuminati a couple of times for exposure. I don't even remember if the Illuminati gives me color info. I think it just gives color balance. I don't think it gives like CRI. I haven't used it in a while. But, you know, the Illuminati is great for stuff like pure exposure. It's a pure exposure thing I can put out in the world. Useful for that. I've been very happy. But for color, I think you're really starting to talk Sakonic and uh, you're really starting to talk Asense Tech or UPR. Again, if you've used the UPR and you dig it, let me know in on the tweets. But the Asense Tech has been very useful and reliable for me in terms of bringing all my units together and making sure that they're they're nicely matched and that they have sort of a good balance. There's a really great video, and I will link to it in my email on Thursday, comparing all of the color meters. It's like three or four years old, but it was a really great uh, video sort of breaking them all down. The thing to remember is you can't go that old with color meters because LEDs are really hard to read and all of the weird units we're working with today are really hard to read. So you really need a modern color meter that's dialed into modern tool sets. Uh, in order to survive the modern era of filmmaking. All right, so this has been another week of the Week in Film Tech. Please subscribe. Every week I'm doing stories like this, keeping you up to date on all of the stuff that filmmaking is uh, coming out with all the time. Please tell your friends who might be filmmakers, hey, I heard about this cool new thing on the Week in Film Tech. Anybody who came out and saw us last week, Jose uh, Padalanorama, it was super fun. Uh, again, in the next two weeks, it's going to be audio only for you YouTube fans, but we'll put it up on YouTube anyway because I'm going to be in Maine teaching at Maine Media Workshop. If you're up in Maine, say hi. And yeah, and sign up for the email list. And I just send out an email every Thursday with like, hey, the new episode's up and here's links that I mentioned in the article. I don't like spam the email lists. All right, well, that's been another week in the week in film tech. Everybody have fun making movies. Music.